Cinematographically, I have registered the opening of Ischaltia on an early summer morning. It gave me a sharp awareness of time passing, of exact qualities and values in the light, but I didn't see the movement as movement. I didn't with my own direct perception see the petals moving. Later on the film, they seemed to open swiftly, but at the time, although I stared and felt time not so much moving as being moved in, and felt a unity of time and place with other times and places. Yet I didn't see the petals moving. I didn't see them opening. Hi, my name is Adam O. Davis. I'm a poet, the author of Index of Haunted Houses, and this is Poetry Goes to the Movies. And my name is Colin Waters. I work at the Scottish Poetry Library. Uh, the voice that you heard at the top of the show was the poet and filmmaker Margaret Tay, and we'll be discussing uh, more about her life and work later in the show. Over the next six weeks, we're going to look at the relationship between cinema and poetry, uh, one of which is arguably the world's most popular art form, and one of which isn't. <laughs> and that said, if we want to achieve anything with this podcast, it's to persuade you that poetry is more influential and omnipresent film than you might think. And Therefore, that poetry, rather than being some elderly relative we wheel out solely for weddings and funerals, is as constant as the shadows we tow behind us. So we're going to be looking at films made by poets such as Jean Cocteau or Maya Deren, uh, films about poets uh, such as Barfly or Sylvia, which, um, if you haven't seen them, respectively told the stories of Charles Bukowski and Sylvia Plath. We'll also look at films about fictional poets like Jim Jarmusch's 2016 film Patterson, and perhaps, if you've got time, uh, we might even look at films based on poems like 2007's motion capture mess, Beowulf. Ouch, all right. Yes. <laughs> you aren't lying. Uh, we'll also go beyond that to look at how genre films can illuminate poems and vice versa. So if you tune in over the run of the show, you'll hear us investigate what John Woo's balletic violence can teach us about the question of identity and poetry. Uh, why a haunted house or a shopping mall, for that matter, may be the best, the best metaphor for a poem possible, and what Bill Murray's approach to his never-ending day and Groundhog Day can tell us about the revision process. And we wanted to have some poets in the show as well. So um, we're going to be talking to poets who've been involved with filmmaking, inspired by films, who have talked a lot about films. And in this episode, for example, we're going to uh, finish it with a short interview with the actor, writer and director Gerda Stevenson. Gerda not only worked with Margaret Tate on her 1992 movie, Blue Black Permanent, she's a poet herself. Uh, so basically, uh, what we're trying to say to you is that if you like film and poems, and if you like chat about film and poems, this is the podcast for you. Adam, I'd like to start by reading two or three sentences taken from reviews of films, and um, it's a pop quiz. Uh, see what you think they've got in common. Okay, so the first the first quote comes from a review of Terence Davis's nineteen ninety two film, The Long Day Closes, by David George Menard. The Long Day Closes is told poetically with a style of realism which is socially relevant, but it does not mean that the story is true. The second sentence is taken from a review of. Annie Varda's uh, 2009 film, The Beaches of Annie, and it was written by uh, the late, great Roger Ebert. 
Varda has given us the most poetic shot about the cinema I've ever seen, where two old fishermen who were young when she first filmed them watched themselves on a screen. And the last quote is from Tony Paley's review of a reissue of The Colour of Pomegranates uh, from 2014. He writes, The Colour of Pomegranates organises chapters depicting the life of Syat Nova in a series of poetic, dreamlike tableau. So, Adam, what have they got in common? I would have to say it's the word poetic there. <laughs> you are right. The word poetic. You win. <laughs> so you win a prize. The prize is you get to hear me yak for another few minutes. <laughs> As a film fan, I've read so many reviews over the years, reviews of films that are described as being poetic, or a sequence in a film is described as poetic, or a performance is described as poetic. And, you know, I'm a semi-intelligent person. I can kind of work out what they mean. But then I wonder if that's possibly because the word's been overused or, or maybe overused by people who don't read a lot of poetry. So there's a sort of certain vague quality, although in a way, I wonder if that's kind of baked into the, the word poetic anyway, as I looked up what it means and the definition of poetic is one, A, of or relating to characteristics of poets or poetry or B, given to writing poetry. The second meaning is written in verse. And thirdly, we have having or expressing the qualities of poetry as through aesthetic or emotional impact. That last one probably gets a bit closer to what critics mean when they're talking about films being poetic. But nevertheless, whenever I hear film being described as poetic, you know, the image that occurs to me is I think, oh, well, the film will probably be a bit artsy, um, probably quite long or slow enough to feel quite long and have lots of shots of the wind blowing through, you know, fields of corn or maybe shadows on a wall or a long shot of a patch of light on a carpet. So I got, I got to thinking, Adam, I thought to myself, you know what, I need to actually ask a poet what poetic means in terms of, of a film. My first question is, what do you think as a poet? What do you think film critics mean when they call a film poetic? And does that relate back to poetry? Or has it become a filmic term in itself that actually doesn't have much of a connection to, to poetry as you might understand it? Yeah, that's such an interesting question. I, mean, I, I like what you raised there about this idea or the definition of, a, of what poetry or poetic means. You know, you know, what strikes me about the term poetic when it's used in film criticism is that it's film criticism shorthand for a lack of expected narrative progression. Uh, you know, it goes back to those wheat fields or the, the, the shadows on the wall. You know, anytime the camera's attention wavers the way our own minds waver, um, you know, it pulls us away from the plot, which suddenly pushes the viewer into an active rather than, uh, than passive experience with the film. You know, now they have to determine what the relevance of the images presented is. So I would say, you know, when people use poetic to describe a film, it's they're really describing anything that goes against the expected narrative grain in a film. Or maybe even more derisively, reviewers often use poetic to almost criticize a film for its lack of attention to the expected plot, or perhaps presenting uh, ideas or images that are not immediately understood. I mean, looking at those three quotes, there's one about two men filmed seeing themselves as young men, which seems like a poem <laughs> just waiting to be written, doesn't it? And then there's a, the long day closes. It's, it's about a style of realism that isn't realistic. And the color of pomegranates, again, they, they mention a poetic dreamlike tableau. So I wonder, you know, when they're talking about poetic, what they're actually meaning is, in a sense, going beneath the everyday uh, into a sort of dreamlike state, something out of the ordinary. What I love about those moments in film is the films make room for the kind of curiosity that we have in our everyday life, where you might get distracted by some 
you know, bright or shiny or eerie or strange object and, and, and that you get that moment to, uh, to kind of delve into it or, or to experience it on its own terms. You know, I mean, I'm thinking of the beginning of Blue Velvet, for example, right? Where the camera descends into the grass and all of a sudden you've got all these terrible insects basically fighting each other. Yeah, that's as that's glaring uh, an example of a poetic opening to a film as one will ever experience. And I, I feel this isn't going to be the last time we mentioned David Lynch during this um, discussion because we'll be talking about Maya Deren very soon. And um, if you can't see the influence on Lynch uh, in Maya Deren's films, you're not trying hard enough. One of the things that's interesting, though, I think, and, and this is more moving on to a technical or even economic aspect, is when you're getting in the zone to write your poems, you know, it's you and a pen and a pad or it's you and a, a laptop or not even that it's you you can memorize it and, and write it down or perform it later on filmmakers obviously they don't have that notepad aspect they film it and it costs money it's expensive so shots tend to be thought out ahead so it's fascinating to me how in a, a medium which you have to be so premeditated about before you even turn on the camera you, you can get these poetic moments this is maybe the moment we should mention this, the sheer number of poets who then went on to become filmmakers and maybe we can sort of tease out some sort of common ground. So as we've mentioned, and we're going to look at them more in a moment, uh, there's Maya Deren and Margaret Tate, but you could also add to that list the Iranian directors, um, Farou uh, Thorik-Zad, there's Abbas Kiarostami, there's the English director Derek Jarman, there's the French director Jean Cocteau, the Chilean French director Alejandro uh, I mean, I was thinking this as well. Bob Dylan directed a couple of films too. Uh, they're terrible, but <laughs> he did direct them. So there's a lot. There's a lot out there, isn't there? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, it. It. it you know, even uh, you know, you think of Jim Jarmusch, right? I mean, he studied poetry initially uh, before uh, falling from the pure faith and entering into cinema. Or, um, you know, not to compare myself to that, but when I started, uh, you know, at, at uni, I was focused on becoming a director or a cinematographer. And then that proved to be too expensive. So I, I took refuge in the pen and the page. I uh, did not know that. Well, there you yeah. go. There's a, a case in point. Do you think perhaps though, and I don't want to spend too much time on this because I want to get back into the directors, but I guess with technology being what it is, you know, you would think with everybody having a, a camera and they're on their phone and in their pocket, there'd be some sort of great renaissance more poetic um, style films. And, and maybe there is, and it's genuinely underground, or maybe it's TikTok. I don't know. I, I was just wondering that myself, because I think that the digital revolution certainly, uh, you know, it put the technology in our hands and it made it inherently cheap. You know, I, I think that TikTok is certainly an example of that. I think of, you know, on Instagram, you've got your stories and usually it's uh, short, I don't know, 15 second snippets of feeding your dog or watching ducks on a pond. And, and particularly in the pandemic, I think these kind of pastoral uh, snapshots become more important for people who feel very uh, claustrophobic being stuck indoors. But it's it's interesting to me that, that I would say that, or I might argue that most people out there armed with a cell phone are, are making their own kind of poetic uh, films, you know, obviously on a much smaller scale. And, you know, I don't know if we can necessarily say that feeding your dog is a particularly poetic moment, but that's not to say that, that it couldn't be, uh, you know, given the context of, uh, of the piece. I think this is leading back to what we're saying. If you look at, you know, the films of Maya Dern or Margaret Tay, Kiarostami, I mean, he made a film, it's brilliant, 10, uh, which is just basically um, a, 
it's about a, a taxi driver and it's you know the set is the car and there's like two cameras one one focused on the front seat and one focused on the back seat and it's a fantastic film and i think what we're heading towards here is if you want to be a more obviously poetic director um you know you're going to be working on a, a shoestring essentially yeah, absolutely. But, but I like, too, that there's a focus on, you know, in that sense, presenting life uh, as it is or being observational in that way of being attuned to everything around you. Because, you know, I often think that, you know, the, the tools to be a poet are the tools that we're all born with and that we eventually kind of have to let go for, for the sake of commerce and survival. But that of just paying attention to absolutely everything out there, being aware of the street that you're on, the pavement, that it, the, the, the way that the pavement looks, the grass, the quality of the light, the 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 temperature of the air, all of these things um, play into a deeper curiosity of life. La tua bellezza sopravvissuta dal mondo antico, richiesta dal mondo futuro, posseduta dal mondo presente, divenne un male mortale. Pasolini, of course, is a really interesting director to mention in, in this context because he was a poet to begin with. I've been studying Italian for a few years now and one of my um, Italian teachers, because she knew I was a film fan, she passed on a copy of Pasolini's poetry, but it was not written in what you might call standard Italian, it was written in Friulian, I think that's how you pronounce it. So you could sort of semi-recognise the words, but not entirely, you know, in the same way that somebody who reads train spotting <laughs> can semi-recognise the words as English. Uh, but Pasolini always really just fascinated me, you know, the way that he um, was able to go from being a poet to, to a filmmaker and, 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 you know, the things that he took over with him. But I wanted, I wanted to mention him in this context because he wrote a really interesting um, essay not long after he became a filmmaker called The Cinema of Poetry, which I'm, I'm going to quote to you if you don't mind. While literary languages base their poetry on the institutionalised premise of usable instrumentalised languages, the common possession of all speakers, Cinematographic language seems to be founded in nothing at all. They do not have as a real premise any communicative language. But if this reasoning were correct, as it would appear to be, cinema would simply not exist. Or if it did, it would be a monstrosity, a series of meaningless signs. Instead, cinema does communicate. So I think what Pasolini is saying there is, you know, if cinema is a language, then it can certainly, you know, like any language, form of poetry or poetics. And what he goes on to say in that essay is that basically he was interested in creating a cinema in which it was as if there was no camera there at all so that the experience of the spectator you know you you as the person watching are accessing the consciousness directly of, of the characters so i kind of think that takes us back to the start that there's some sort of sense of of dreaminess or it's either life at a sort of 45 degree angle or or it's it's life slowed down or something like that What's, what's your take on that, Adam? What I find fascinating about, about that quote is that, you know, it really suggests the essential nature of the audience, right? I mean, you know, the thing that's keeping cinema from being, what was it, this monstrous series of meaningless signs is, um, is the viewer. And if they're presented with a series of signs with no outside authorial directive, they have to determine uh, the relevance of the images presented. So they then take over the story and, and perhaps even the film itself, which I think is what, what Pasolini is, is arguing there, you know, which would make the, the viewer, the film's director, you know, in the same way that I guess 
we direct or, you know, in my case, are sometimes directed by our dreams. You know, so I, I'm, I'm wondering when we talk about poetic cinema, I'm wondering what we're really talking about is, is dreams or, you know, like like you said, that that kind of feeling of dreaminess, that 45 degree angle, you know, that that kind of gauzy combination of image and sound and narrative feels borrowed from our deepest sleep cycles. Well, that seems like a good moment to look at our first uh, director in depth, because if, if gauziness and dreaminess can be applied to any filmmaker, I think Maya Darren is the person in question. So listener, dear listener, what we did here was Adam and I decided to look at two directors more closely. Who have you chosen, Adam? I chose Maya Darren. Now, what is it about Maya Darren that attracted your attention? I think, um, I mean, I first encountered her in, um, and I, I first encountered, not her personally, but I, in her film, uh, Meshes of the Afternoon, um, when I was still a film student back in the day at, at uni. I think it, it was easily one of the most perplexing and delightful films that I've ever seen. You know, if there's one single image from cinema that contains both the power, you know, as John Berryman wrote of his own poetry, to comfort and terrify, it would be the scene from Darren's Meshes of the Afternoon where the unnamed protagonist, who's played by Darren, um, she always seems to, to play the main protagonist in her films, she's chasing after this clipped figure who slips farther and farther away no matter how fast Darren runs. And, and to your point about things being slowed down in dreams, uh, the figure is walking in, in, I guess, what we'd call real time, whereas Darren is running in, in slow motion, it seems, but at the same point. And so she's chasing this, this cloaked figure, and finally the cloaked figure pauses for a moment and turns around and reveals a face, which isn't a face, but a mirror. This figure regards Darren for a moment and, and the mirror fills with sun and the reflection of some palm trees and then turns away and it's never seen again. And for me, the beauty and even, forgive me, the poetry, I might say, of, of that image is its simplicity. Uh, you've got a black cloak and a mirror. And in place of the expected eyes, mouth and nose, we find the familiar, that, that mirror that makes everything stranger. There's no monster mask or special effect that could better light up my limbic system as it simultaneously chills my marrow. And it's important to note that this Grim Reaper isn't a throwaway visual. The mirror returns at the film's end when it smashes open to reveal a beach. And then finally, we see Darren dead in an armchair, wrapped in seaweed and covered in broken glass. And there's this recursive intelligence in the, in the film that, that bears all the hallmarks of a good poem. You know, an image introduced in the first stanza uh, ticks away like a time bomb until finally making its meaning known in the last line. And what I also find so poetic about Darren's work is the, uh, the thingness of it. Now, thingness isn't a technical term. In, in fact, it's a complete insult to the English language. But this thingness relates to the power that things, in other words, objects, hold in both her work and, and poetry at large. So, you know, in, in specific, I'm thinking William Carlos Williams, who famously stated, no ideas but in things. And what I take that to mean is that every object contains within it not only a history of its necessity, but also its necessity to us. So, for example, a water bottle says more about our thirst for privacy and ownership than it says about our actual thirst. And with that, so it goes that the things that we surround our th ourselves with end up defining us. And that's why we have archaeology and antiquing and overpriced Italian sports cars. <laughs> but, you know, but, but uh, you know, back to William's quote, I mean, it, it relates directly to imagism, which was a school of poetry founded by the infamous Ezra Pound, who sought to bring the immediacy and depth of photography or painting to the written word. Um, you know, he wanted 
a single poem to contain just as much power as a single visual. And he ended up doing this a little too well with his 1913 poem in a station, the Metro, which remains the alpha and omega of the imagist movement, owing to its precision and, and devotion to detail. And, and I'm sure you, you know the poem well, and I can just recite it from memory here, but it's the apparition of these faces in a crowd, petals on a wet black bough. And, and for Pound, a successful imagist poem required the three following tenets. One was the direct treatment of the thing, whether subjective or objective. Two, to use absolutely no word that does not contribute to the presentation. And three, as regarding rhythm, to compose in sequence of the musical phrase, not in sequence of the metronome. And I'd argue that Pound's near haiku of an ode to beauty in the bowels of Parisian transport fulfills all three tenants admirably. And I'd also argue that Darren's work is intrinsically poetically imagistic, which, you know, sounds idiotic because of course it's imagistic. It's on, <laughs> it's on the screen, but her films are full of things like keys or flowers or rocks or chess pieces or knives, like the things that Williams spoke of, you know, everything is a thing in which there is an idea. So everything in that sense of a door. It's a passageway into possibility. In her film, At Land, she climbs the bleached roots of a beech tree only to find herself at the foot of a long dining table that she then crawls across as if through a thicket of oak leaves to arrive at a chess game at the end whose pawn is central in her kind of reclaiming her identity. Um, you know, in uh, Meshes of the Afternoon, she loses her house key only to find it under her tongue. And in Meshes of the Afternoon, she really captures the supernatural beauty of, you know, mid-century Los Angeles. You know, it's it's kind of deathless dream of weather, but but shot through with a, like a film noir aesthetic. The shadows are all chiaroscuro, the sudden appearance of sinister men, the threatening uh, appearance of weapons. And, and her films seem to be intimately focused on the self or how the self might rescue the self from what others would rather it be, you know, and, and in, in line with that, and understandably, there's a haunting sexuality to her work, kind of Lynchian before David Lynch's sense of unease about the prospect of sex tinged with violence and also with a surrender of what might be your very self. And, and, and kind of most disturbingly, but, but fascinatingly, in her work, the, the methodology of self-liberation is almost always rooted in self-destruction. It's important to mention that, that Darren was a poet. She wrote poetry. Um, I have to admit that what I've found of it fails to capture the imagination the way her films do. But her films really remind me of two, two poets in specific, both somewhat related to the imagist movement. One would be Amy Lowell, who brought to Pound's eventual dismay uh, his imagist movement to the United States. And the other would be uh, Lorreen uh, Niedeker, who uh, arrived a little too late to be called an imagist, but whose work is playfully terse and and kind of just as immediate uh, as, as the simple surrealism of Darren's work. So I'll just read two short poems here. One by Amy Lowell, it's called A Lover. If I could catch the green lantern of the firefly, I could see to write you a letter. And then the next poem is by Laureen uh, Niedeker. It's uh, A Monster Owl. A monster owl out on the fence flew away. What is it the sign of? The sign of an owl. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, not to take it back to Lynch, but of course, you know, the owls are not what they seem. But I, I love the... I love the straightforward nature of both of these poems. There's this playfulness there, and there's almost this refusal as well to name the significance of the object as being anything other than the object itself, right? The owl flies away. What is it a sign of? It's a sign of an owl, and, and then we get that. 
you know, to, to, to conclude, I guess, you know, the poet and translator Richard Howard once explained to me that verse reverses, prose proceeds. And what makes Maya Duren's work so decidedly poetic is her emphasis on reversals, revisions, repetitions, um, the way she works in texture and mood rather than plot and payoff. You know, in her films, I find the same rhythm I find in my dreams and, and the best poems. You know, action reduced again and again to attempt. All the energy is potential and only kinetic in, in nightmare. And, and what I really love is just her films pause to consider what the mind, both conscious and unconscious, make of the multitudes that make up the, the minutes of our days. She was very young when she made um, Meshes the Afternoon. She was 24. She co-directed it with her then husband, I think he was her second husband, uh, Alexander Hammett, who was 36. If you look at the films that she did afterwards and the films that he did afterwards, it's obviously it's Maya Darren who's the creative force for that film. She apparently had never really um, seen any other experimental films before. I don't even think she was much of a cinema fan. I think the reason she ended up doing it was because her husband was a director of uh, photography and so she had the equipment and the expertise to hand. The fact that she doesn't seem to know much about filmmaking before making meshes, it's, it reminds me of that line by T.S. Eliot about how a poet, when they start writing, should either know everything or know nothing. And I kind of feel she's in, in the best sense in the know-nothing camp. She doesn't have any preconceptions. She just she has an idea for an image and she wants to put it out there. There's a, a great quote, um, and in fact, it relates back to what you're saying. It's worth remembering that um, her, her thesis at university was on the influence of the French symbolist school on Anglo-American poetry. So T.S. Eliot and Ezra Parent were very much in her mind. And she writes about the imagists. She wrote, um, we can see that the obscurity of which the imagists have been accused is actually motivated by a desire for precision, regardless how rare or startling the precise word and the suggestiveness of uh, imagism is the result, not of words exhaling indecision and vagueness, as is often the case with the romanticists, but of the direct comprehension by the live and strong expression, the new and startling image. And, and that is you know, true of imagism and it's, it's true of her films. Uh, there's another great line here by um, Jay Hoberman. Bearing in mind that the film, you know, if you watch it, the star, it states explicitly filmed in Hollywood. Jay Hoberman says, Meshes seems less related to European surrealism than to Freudian flashbacks and sinister living rooms that typify Hollywood's wartime noir films. Located in some hilly, Ellie suburb, the house where Darren's erotic, violent fantasy was filmed might be around the corner from Barbara Stanwyck's place in Double Indemnity. So there's a real sense that even though, you know, Meshes is quite out there, it's also very much part of a sort of very recognisable American atmosphere or, or, or feeling. That sort of sense that just beneath the surface, something is waiting to break or for you to plunge into it. Absolutely. No, it, and it reminds me of Faulkner, who famously went to L.A. to try and make some money. I forget the exact quote, but he referred to Hollywood or Los Angeles or Southern California as, I think, a, a cult of death or something. Like that. <laughs> and there, there is some truth to that. I mean, there is something, you know, supernaturally beautiful about the landscape out here but also terrifying in the sense that without seasons, everything just remains the same. And you realize very quickly that you as a human being are the outlier in, in all this because you're aging and nothing else is. I dream of poems like the bread knife, which cuts three slices at once. A poetry like the hope of achieving ere very long a tolerable idea of what happens from first to last if we bend a piece of wire backwards and forwards until it breaks. 
Ah, Lennon, politics is child's play to what this must be. From a, the, the land where the sun never sets um, to my country where it never rises. <laughs> <laughs> we could do some with some of that LA sun, you know. We've got the same thing, but with rain. You chose Maya Darren. I chose, uh, as promised, Margaret Tate. And um, I'll give you some biographical background on, on Margaret Tate before talking about her um, quite extensive, actually, for a filmmaker who uh, operated outside of uh, the mainstream. Margaret Tate was born in Orkney in 1918. She didn't stay there all her life. Um, at age eight, she was sent by her family to be educated in Edinburgh, and she stayed on in Edinburgh to study medicine. In 1943, which was the year when Meshes was made, wasn't it? In 1943, she joined the Royal Army Medical Corps. And so while Maya Darren and her husband were making films, Margaret Tate was off in India, Sri Lanka, and Malaysia. And it was a year after the war finished in 1946 that she finally returned to Edinburgh to um, practice as a physician. But very interestingly, she only did that for four years. And then in 1950, she threw up being a doctor and spent the next two years in Italy. She studied Italian and she also studied filmmaking both in Perugia and in Rome. One of our lecturers was um, Roberto Rossellini, actually. So that time in Italy, that was, I guess that's a key to her sort of moment Um of becoming a filmmaker because after that when she comes back she comes back to the UK and again she works as a doctor but she seems to be working as a doctor mainly to to fund her, her filmmaking and she starts a sort of career filmmaking by the time she died in the, the early part of the 21st century she'd actually made um, 30 short films and describing them as is um it's interesting i guess because they're they're very much um film poems they're very different from Maya Darren's in, in terms of sort of Maya Darren is very much um, looking at maybe a psychosexual uh, subconscious world that she's exploring with sort of dream symbols and herself at the center of them Margaret Tate her films are much more documentary but there's also a very strong sense of poetry in the film she she called them herself film poems when she spoke about who her influences were she never really spoke about other filmmakers she spoke about um Lorca for example uh, a poet in New York seems to have been a collection that really shaped how she saw images working uh, and she spoke about stalking the image or um breathing with the camera which is a fascinating way of putting it the editor of her collection of poetry um, that you can get in the UK, Poems, Stories and Writing, uh, which is published by Carcanet, the editor, Sarah Neely, she writes of Tate that her preoccupations with writing were informed by her approach to filmmaking and vice versa. And she has a, a longer piece here where she talks about Tate called on the perceived objectivity of the technological aspects of cinema, uh, the camera and its presumed ability to present objects within its frame in great and equal detail, in order to develop what she believes to be a pure form of poetry. It is not surprising then that she disliked the use of cinematic devices such as fades or dissolves, which might be seen to interrupt the focused, seemingly objective gaze. I think that goes back to what Pasolini was saying about trying to make films in which the camera you know, that the camera doesn't exist. And the camera doesn't exist because they're trying to go straight from image to to the, the viewer without any sort of mediation. So, of course, it's all very, <laughs> it's all very um, artful. So you, you pay your money, you take your choice. One of the things that really interests me about her filmmaking as opposed to her poetry, her poetry is the most straightforward, almost conversational, descriptive poetry you could ever hope for. So I'll, I'll read out a 
a short example of a poem called Carbon. And, and Carbon, um, this poem, which is from her um, first collection, which she printed herself, Origins and Elements, which was done in 1959, quite often her background as a doctor and as a scientist comes through, as you'll hear in, in this excerpt from Carbon. Carbon is diamond. It's what we use in the grate or the gas jet to warm ourselves by, making it combine with the oxygen of the air. Warm combustible oxygen. There's a flame, warmth, and carbon dioxide. That's all that's left of the carbon, a whiff. And carbon is one of the essential elements of all living things. All organic matter contains carbon. It's the scientific definition of an organic substance that it contains carbon. Diamonds in the blood, coal in the brain paths. So she, you know, she... <laughs> She, she goes on to that's quite a long poem by the way and it goes it keeps on going on about the qualities of carbon and she has other ones about electricity or elasticity or other elements in the periodic table it's funny because when you actually watch her um film poems for example there's one called the leaden echo and the golden echo which is an interpretation of gerald manley hopkins poem and you know hopkins is quite a sort of um, i don't want to say flowery poet but he's certainly a, a poet's poet so it's very interesting to me that in her film work she's influenced by Lorca, she's influenced by by hopkins and she's also influenced by some scottish poets like mcdermott who she actually did a film about or she'll mention Shirley MacLaine, all very much poety poets, but in her own poetry, it's very straightforward and very um, conversational. Although she might be talking about things, you know, I mean, I don't know if anyone else has written a poem about carbon. <laughs> it seems to be kind of unique to Margaret Tate that she, you know, in her poetic persona, she's not terribly poetic, but in her filmmaking uh, persona, she is. I watched her films as well, and there's a very strong uh, documentary angle to that. I mean, I love the idea of her viewing the, the films. I think you said it was like breathing? Yeah, breathing with a camera. Breathing with a camera. So I, I certainly got a, a strong documentary vibe, I guess, from her, her work. But also that poem you read, I mean, it feels documentarian as well in that way. The observation and then the recording of it. And, you know, the, I, I think that's what I found so charming about, um, is it Portrait of Ga? Yeah, Portrait of Ga, which is about her, her mother. I believe it was her reciting a poem or, or speaking about her mother. But then the, there's a single shot in there of just her mother unwrapping this uh, yellow candy or yellow sweet that's uh, wrapped in cellophane and then popping it in her mouth. And there was just something so charming and wonderfully peaceful about that, where you felt like you were in the room and that it seemed familiar, like a memory you might have of your own relative in some way. There was, a, there was an ease to her filmmaking that, at least in that film, kind of disrupted the barrier that's usually between the viewer and the, the film. We have these two different binaries on some level where you have the surrealism of Darren and then maybe the the realism of of Tate on some level but those both being considered a kind of of, of poetry well that seems to bring us nicely to the the conclusion of our Maya Darren Margaret Tate chat so I spoke to Gerda Stevenson earlier in the week Gerda as I mentioned is a, an actor and a poet and a director and she worked with Margaret Tate on her 1992 film Blue Black Permanent Blue Black Permanent is um, Margaret Tate's only full-length film, and um, shockingly, actually, it was the first full-length film directed by a woman in Scotland. It took till 1992 for that to happen. Yeah. I know. Here's Gerda um, talking about Margaret Tate. I've always said that Margaret Tate is a kind of beachcomber artist that's how I felt she worked watching her work 
you know, she was very experimental and she would uh, just use whatever she found. You know, her camera would rove and she she was very, very spontaneous and instinctive. And if something wasn't working, she'd just sort of do something else. She wouldn't worry at something to perfect it because perfectionism was not her approach at all. So I think what I would say is I, that I learned from her would have been a kind of learning to be open to the moment. She's very much an artist who's working in the moment. I don't think she did lots and lots of redrafting of her poetry, for example. She believed that something was created and then it existed and kind of that was it really and then moved on in that way. She was very experimental. Now, I, I'm not like that. I worry at things. But I love improvising in theatre and I do think it's really, really important to be able to be open to something coming into your consciousness or into your vision, into your thought. And that is the way that Margaret worked. So as someone who's worked in film and poetry, what do you see as the connections between the two? Do you think film and poetry have a common language of any kind? I think they can have a common language. I think it depends on what kind of film and what kind of poetry. Uh, I think that Margaret's uh, films, she always called them film poems. And that's because they are a kind of distillation and they're full of images. I mean, her films of Rose Street, for example, are just so full of such memorable images, as indeed her, her wonderful short film of uh, a portrait of Ga, of her mother, is, it's got such strong imagery in it, which is really kind of beyond words. And I think... For me, when poetry is working really, really at its best, it's when the the words go beyond the words into the image and the words aren't self-conscious and drawing attention to themselves. So that that's, in a, in a sense, the connection between poetry and film for me. You know, I think that po I think poetry can be almost like creating a film in your head. <laughs> Would it be great to hear you um, read um, your poem inspired by a portrait of Ga? Yeah, this is my, my poem for Margaret. One of my very favourite films is her portrait of Ga. It was a family name, Ga, that the, the family used for, used for, for grandmother, Ga. In this case, it's actually her mother, but um, at that stage in her life, she's uh, her own mother is, is a grandmother. Uh, not um, of uh, Margaret's children. She, Margaret didn't have children, although I believe she wanted to. But this, yes, this is me writing a kind of poem film <laughs> in response to Margaret's film poem. Margaret Tate's Portrait of Ga. Mother. I need to get you in the can, I say. Your cheekbones cutting the light, hair flying loose from its pins like stray wool on barbed wire. I know already what the soundtrack will be. A smoky flute breathing that ghost of a march you're conducting right now with a fag end. 
Your wry smile gives me the green light, the mouth's hallmark curve, your own mother in it, a glimmer of my ga, and her mother, your ga, Viking quines, their lineage folding back through time beyond the rainbow on today's horizon. Invisible women in my wide-angle frame as you step away up the road's incline. And yet, there they are, in the jaunt of you, that quiet defiance, happed in classic tweed, breaking loose from buttons in a careless dance. Cut to close-up, a shadowed interior. My lens drinks the silver of your window-lit hair then tilts down the neck's white flow, rests on the bray of your shoulder, blue linen pleats tailored with grace, like the years you've gathered. There's so much to see and hear in you, so many layers, like the constantly shifting shells at bay of scale, a gurgling burn of wordplay in your eyes, on your tongue, your own kennings coined for Grand Bairn's delight, and always the skylark and wind in your hearing, even between four walls. Closer still, your thumbs and fingers unveil a boiled sweet, slow pincer moves left and right, right and left. Life here has shown you ambrosia moments won't be hurried. Till the cellophane bud blooms and you slip its nectar between your teeth. Wide shot. Exterior. Leaning into your spade, you turn the earth. Garden blossoms wag in the breeze. The girl in you obliges by giving me a burl. Then you settle into a sunlit book. Ritual and rhythm in all your days as they blow through each season, drawing to a close on this northern rim of the world. And that wraps it up for the first episode in our new series, Poetry Goes to the Movies. Uh, I'd like to make some thank yous before we sign off. So a big thank you to my co-host, Adam Davis. Uh, I'd like to thank Gerda Stevenson, who you heard at the end of the show there. A reminder, her collection from which she read her poems is Quines, Poems and Tribute to the Women of Scotland. That's published by Lewith and will set you back a mere 9 99 Sarah Neely, I should thank her for permission to use the poem Now, which you heard at the start of the show. Sarah also edited Margaret Tate's work, um, the best example of which is her poems, songs and writing, and that's published by Carcanet in the UK. I'm also indebted to the BFI Classics booklet, Meshes of the Afternoon, by John David Rhodes, which had some great information which we used during the show on Maya Deren and her classic film. I should also say as well that uh, the two samples that you heard during the course of the show, the first one in Italian was La Rabia, which is a film by Pasolini, 
and the other one was Hugh McDermott, a portrait. You heard a clip of McDermott speaking just before we talked about Margaret Tate because indeed that film is directed by Margaret Tate. La Rabia uh, came out in 1963 and Hugh McDermott, a portrait, that came out in 1964. And of course, thank you, dear listener, for tuning in. So what do we have for episode two? For episode two, we're going to be looking at identity, masks and metamorphosis in relation to John Woo's 1997 action classic, Face off. Wow. We've got something in common. We both know our guns. What we don't have in common is that I don't care if I live, and you do. Sean, that hurts. You're not having any fun, are you, Sean? Why don't you come with us? Try terrorism for hire. We'll blow some shit up. It's more fun.